Bibles and turn with me to John 15. John 15, and we are uh, had a wonderful service this morning, and uh, the Lord really blessed, and I'm very thankful for what He's done. If you remember last week, we, we, we ended at verse, uh, really around verse number uh, 11, 12, somewhere around that, and and uh, the Lord, of course, is telling us to abide in Christ, to abide in Christ. In order for us to uh, be bearers of fruit, we are to be plugged into the vine, connected to uh, the vine, which is Christ. And, of course, we know the vine dresser, the, the farmer, the tenant. He's the, he's the father. And then we are the branches. We are the ones that through the Spirit of God... That life-giving power flows through that vine and through that, that branch, and that branch then bears fruit. And of course, Jesus said that, that, uh, that your joy may be full, that my joy will be in you and that your joy may be full. And so a, a fruitful branch bears much fruit. And that's where Jesus kind of, kind of given this last uh, message, these last few chapters, he's given that, that, that message to his disciples. But then he transitions from, from that vine and the branches and the vine dresser to friendship. And we find that in verse number 12. He says this in John 15 and verse 12. Now follow along. He says, This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. So he gives the disciples an instruction. He says, I want you to love each other. Again, Jesus is teaching this. He, he kind of covers three parts in John 15. And so he's telling the disciples, love each other. I, I've commanded you to do it. You love, be obedient. Then he says, verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. So he says, you're about to see the ultimate sacrifice of what love. You're about to see what love looks like. I'm about to lay my life down for you because you are my friends. And a friend that loves you will die for you. That's what he says in verse number 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. I love verse 14. Ye are my friends. Now you think about this. Jesus is talking to these disciples and he says, listen, I know I'm your rabbi, I know I'm your master, I know I'm your teacher, but you're my friends. But notice, if ye do whatever or whatsoever I command you. So you may be listening, you may say, well, pastor, it kind of sounds like friends, but with some stipulation to it. It, it sounds like uh, you, you got to do these things in order. No, what Jesus is saying is, I'll know you're a true friend if you do what I've commanded. If you have done these things, then you are my friend. Verse 15, henceforth I call you not a servant. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. There's no relationship between a servant and a master. He just does it because he's supposed to. But I have called you friends. That changes things. For all things that I have heard of you, of my father rather, I have heard of my father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. So that fruit that you bear on the vine that branch that produces the fruit of the Spirit, that fruit should remain until you go to glory. It should always be bearing fruit. Now notice, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask in the Father's name, He will give 
or He may give it you. That's prayer. So you're connected to the vine. You're abiding in the vine. You're abiding in your friend. He loves you and you love Him. He tells you what to do and of course you do those things. But then it says in verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. So the first part of John 15, we are not producers of spiritual fruit, but bearers of fruit. The second part of John 15 is love is not a feeling, love is a decision. I have chosen you. I love you. You are my friends. I'm your friends. I'm about to sacrifice myself. I have chose to die on the cross. Why? Because I love you. I don't want you to spend eternity uh, in, away from me, eternity in hell. I, don't, I love you, so I'm making a way for you. But then notice he says in verse 18, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Now that's a, that is an interesting transition. Jesus goes from love and friendship to if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If you are my friend, then you can't be their friend. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, so I've called you for a specific purpose, Therefore the world hateth you. Remember, the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. And if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. For he that hateth me hateth my Father also. Let's pray and look at this verses here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful crowd this morning on this rainy Sunday morning. And Lord, you have brought folks here this morning. We're very thankful for that. Lord, guest and and uh, visitors, I'm sure, and, and then, of course, our people, and we're thankful, uh, Lord, to, to be here. And, Lord, I pray that you'll help us in this text this morning to, to bring out and say exactly what I'm supposed to and, and uh, Lord, not say what I'm not supposed to. Lord, I pray that you'll bless your word as you've promised to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. If love is not a feeling and it's a decision, and we're not producers of fruit, it's the Lord, we're bearers of His fruit, then the third part of John 15 would be persecution is not an exemption. It is a rule. Paul said to Timothy, Yea, all that live godly shall suffer persecution. What's Jesus telling these boys? Here are these disciples. He said, fellas, if the world hates, they've hated me, they're going to hate you. You're, you're going to suffer and then he, he, he goes on in John 15, and, and it's a jarring statement because verses 18 and 19, you remember you're attached to the vine, you're a friend of the court, and, and the phrase begins, if. You'll see four ifs in this statement that Jesus is saying, and that if does not imply that it might not happen. For example, if you don't set your alarm, uh, you may be late for work, or, or if you don't take out the trash, your wife may uh, make you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for supper, which ain't too bad, but she may not be cooking for you because you're not helping out around the house. And if those things, they are, they are probable. I'm not speaking of, of things that I've experienced, by the way. 
<laughs> I do like a peanut butter and jelly, but I'd rather have a cooked meal, right? So I've got to do those things. But here are these, these statements that Jesus said. The ifs here are not might be or probability, if you will. They're, they're statements of assumptions. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, well, they will. If you are of the world, where, but you're not. Verse 22, look at it. If I had not come and spoken to them, but he did. Verse 24, if I had not done among the works and then no one else did, but he did. So, so these are not possibilities. These are assumptions. And Jesus says this, if you make me your closest friend, the world is going to hate you. They're going to revile you. They're going to disdain you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to ignore you. They're going to have pity on you. And any of those things that they do to you, they did to me. Because you are my friend. And frankly, we are presenting today in 2023 a distorted message when we try to sell Jesus to the masses for all the positive reasons. We, we try to put Jesus in a box and make it look really nice and we give it to the crowds and often the crowds will eat it up because they believe that if they follow Jesus or they accept Jesus, that it's going to be a life of ease. It's going to be a life of prosperity. But my friend, nothing could be furthest from the truth. Matter of fact, Michael Horton, he wrote this in his book, Made in America. He said, the gospel is now consumer-centered rather than God-centered. It is as if God must be justified before the sinner, and now it is the unbeliever who has to be satisfied with God and His terms. And so we package our gospel in an attractive term and with an attractive promises to sell Christianity to the people of Vanity Fair. Can I say this? It don't work that way. Jesus has never been pleasant to the world. Jesus has never been attractive to the world. Jesus has always been hated by the world. I'm talking about the world system, not the world that he created in John 1. I'm talking about the world system. They have always rejected Jesus. You say, why? Because he is God. We need Him. Do you, do you want to see what the prosperity theology has done? Do you want to see what prosperity theology looks like? Then turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Look, look with me in Hebrews 11. And I'll show you what prosperity gospel looks like according to the Word of God. Hebrews 11. And let's, let's begin at verse number 36. If you want to see what following Christ of course, this is the hall of faith. This is the, what we call the hall of faith in the Bible. The, a lot of these folks that we, we preach about, they're in this chapter. But many are not mentioned starting in verse number 36. And others, we don't know who those others are. We'll, we'll know one day. Others had a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings and, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, literally in half apart. We're tempted. We're slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, they would, they would take those sheepskins and they would dip them in water and then they would set them in the sun and they would uh, put that sheepskin on a person and they would, uh, they would uh, which was already itchy and smelly, I mean, they would cut it off of a sheep right away and put it on. 
And then they would put it in water and they would set that Christian out in the sun for days and let that sheepskin dry up and shriver uh, and shrivel rather and, and they would uh, uh, let it kind of shrink and then contract and it would literally smother that Christian to death and that sheepskin would just leave him out there in the sun and let him bake in the sun and it was a sign of torture. And that's, that's what they did here in, in Hebrews 11 in goat skins being destitute, afflicted and tormented and of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in, and in uh, dens and in caves of the earth. You say, Pastor, what does following Christ result in? Prosperity? This is your prosperity. Many were martyred for the faith and it caused them to, it cost them their life. It cost them friendships. It cost them their freedoms. It cost them. I'll say this, listen, these televangelists these men that still are on the TV, and yes, many of them are way up in years. I'm talking about Benny Hinn. I'm talking about uh, Copeland, Kenneth Copeland, and I'm talking about people like Pat Robertson. You say, Pastor, I'm talking about that prosperity gospel has killed the American church. And see, we used to think, oh, yeah, that was in the 80s and the 90s. Let me tell you something. We, 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 we have preached a message of grace, but we've left truth out. The, the pleated pants, the, the, the Hawaiian shirts, the really cool music, and we've tried to sell Jesus to the lost, and it's not worked. And here's what's happened. We've created an American church that is spoiled and dead. Spoiled and dead. We, we, we are living in some Laodicean days where we're neither hot nor cold. We're just content. We need to get back to... Preaching the word. Preaching a suffering Christ. Preaching. Listen, everybody wants the, the crown without the cross. They want the, they want the blessing without the burden. They want the rose without the thorns. They're not willing to pay the price. And we're starting to see as persecution ramps up all across the world, including America, we're going to see who the real Christians are. We're going to see who the real churches are. Churches will close. Pastors will resign. We'll start seeing a sad thing. We're already seeing it across our nation. It is a sad display of what we really are. And you say, why? We have gotten away from truth. And we tried to kill people with grace. Listen, I love the message of grace. I love amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But you cannot separate truth from grace. Everywhere you find grace, you find truth. And what we did is we sold out truth and we just embraced grace and the churches grew, but they grew with lost people. you got to have truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, we don't have a problem around here at Bible Baptist of attracting a crowd. God has blessed our church. We're preaching to full audiences and we're, we're, try, we're, we're in a building program and we're trying to figure out the next step and we're, we're thankful for what God has done. But you want a crowd? You want to preach to a crowd? We can get a crowd. We can, we can do whatever and sell out whatever and not really preach truth and not preach the Bible and have wonderful, exciting, upbeat and uh, talented musicians and all those things and bring in the masses. But let me tell you something. I will answer to God for not preaching the truth. I will answer to God for not preaching the truth to a generation that needs to hear. Oh, yes, they need to hear about grace, but they need to hear about truth. And the incredible thing about Jesus Christ is that 
that in John 15, he's turning the tables on contemporary Christianity and what we really think what Christians are. We have teaching in our church. We, we teach doctrine. Listen, I, I, I know a professor right now in a good university, I mean a, a prominent university that is telling him, his friends are telling him, the university is telling him, if you mention Jesus in your classroom, you will be fired. If you attend a student-led Bible study as a professor, you represent this college, you will be fired. Listen, standing for Christ. I know students who have received lower grades on their reports in college because they are a Christian. I have a close friend who, who loses his job uh, because he stood for Christ and made some commitments about Christ. Listen to me. Persecution, this is what persecution looks like. And for the sake of the Lord, in, in John chapter 15, it reveals that you will face derision, you will face reviling, you will face pity, you will face scorn, you will face responses, negative responses from the world. If you haven't faced it, then get ready, it's coming. If you stand for Christ. Did you know that missiologists, those who study world missions will say that 80% of the world is facing persecution now, 80% Christians, 80% in the world. Now we're of the 20%, we would make up here in America, we don't really know what persecution really looks like, not yet, not considering what China looks like, not considering what India looks like, not considering what Pakistan looks like in the Middle East, not considering even our friends in Canada and in Mexico, what they face as a Christian. It hasn't came to America yet, but it's coming. It's coming. Notice the last verses of chapter, verse 26. Look at John 15 and verse 26. The Bible says this, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Now notice verse 27. And ye also shall bear witness. That word witness in the Greek is the same word as martyr. You will be a witness or you will be a martyr because ye have been with me from the beginning. What's Jesus saying to his disciples? Jesus is saying, boys, listen. Because you have followed me, it's going to cost you your life. And boy, did it ever. All of the disciples died a martyr's death except John. They tried to kill him. He wouldn't die. God had a reason for that. He was boiled alive. All the rest of them hung and decapitated and hung upside down and pushed off of walls and everything else for the sake of the gospel. And he's saying, boys, because you followed me, you will be a witness. You will be a martyr. You will be a martyr. What does persecution look like then? Well, they worshipped Caesar. Caesar was, a, a, of course, a political figure, and they would have a day, every day a year, they would offer incense up to Caesar. And here's what they were commanded to say. Everybody in Rome was commanded to say this, and in all of Rome rule, Caesar is Lord. That's what they would say. Caesar is Lord. They would offer up incense to, to Caesar and they would say, Hail, Caesar is Lord. And they would receive a little certificate that stated that they followed through with their worship of Caesar. The Christians of this day refused to worship Caesar and it cost them. What would persecution look like back then? Oh, they imprisoned them. They beat them. They killed them. They took their children from them. 
What else was going on in that day? Well, there's Jewish ostracism. They called Jews insurrectionists. They called them cannibals for partaking of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Communion. They, 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 taught, they, they called them that they were insiders of riots because they would not obey and they, and they also accused them of burning up places when in fact Nero was responsible for burning his own city. But he blamed the, the Christians. Nero accused the Christians of doing so in order to fulfill uh, the, the, the sermons of future fire. Matter of fact, there was a historian who wrote about it, and uh, his name was uh, Tacitus. And he wrote about Nero and how he hated the Christians. And he had to get rid of them, so he made this up. What was going on back in them days where they would set persecution, they would set poles and they would stick a, a, a Christian on top of this pole and run that pole through that Christian and would douse him in a, in a fuel and would light him on fire to light the ways to the city. What else was going on in this day of persecution? Well, there was divided families. See, by the way, one other trumped-up reason Christians were being persecuted was wives were, were uh, getting saved and husbands were getting saved and children were renouncing idolatry and many were coming to Christ and so they had to do something. Revival was breaking out. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 6, the Bible says that these people turned the world upside down. Followers of Jesus. Jesus is saying this, if you want to follow me, then understand I don't offer you riches. I don't offer you prosperity. I don't offer you health. I don't offer you promotion. I don't offer you anything but a rugged cross. That's all you get is a cross. To be a true disciple. Now, what does persecution look like now? That was then, but what does it look like now? Obviously, we're not burning at the stake at a liberal something. They're not throwing us in prison as far as I know. They may threaten it, and at least we know that they're not doing that yet. Does Jesus intend this passage to apply to us? If, if we're not facing persecution right now, then, then as far as as a whole, and, and we're talking about imprisonment and beatings and, and persecution, beheadments and all those things, then, then does this apply to us? It absolutely does. Because as I said earlier, Paul wrote to Timothy, Yea, all that live godly shall suffer persecution. Now we need to go back to John 15, look at verse 18. Here's what he says where I read in the beginning of our, our message. He says, if the, if the world hate you, ye know that, I, it, that it hated me before it hated you. So the world here is, in the Bible it uses a different, uh, different meanings the world has. First, the created world, John uh, chapter 1 and verses 15 and, 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 uh, 14 and 15, where he talked about that the world was made through him, Jesus. There's that world. He's not talking about that world, the created world. The world of humanity, John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world. That's not the world that Jesus is even talking about here. He's talking about the world system. The world system. The world's plans, the world's activities, the world's philosophies, the world's vanities, the world's values, the world's agendas. Paul put it in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 2. He says that we're not to be conformed to this world. That's the same world. We're to be separate. We're to stand for something. We're not to be conformed to the world. 
In other passages in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul uh, refers to Satan as the God of this world. But so did Jesus. Matter of fact, turn with me to John chapter 14 and verse number 30, just one chapter over, and look with me in verse number 30. Here's what Jesus said hereafter. I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Go back a couple chapters, John chapter 12 and verse number 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. By the way, these are all the words of Jesus. Go with me to John chapter 17 and verse number 14. John 17 and verse number 14. I have given them the word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So sanctify them through my, or thy truth, thy word is Truth. So here's the truth about the world system. The world in all of its fads, the world in all of its fashions, the world in all of its values, you'll get along with it if you conform to it. It's not hard to do. Just go with the flow. But when you shine as a light, and when you take a stand, and when you stand for truth, listen, be prepared for persecution. Matter of fact, John MacArthur said this. He said, Christians are the conscience of the world. Our testimony confronts the world system with a righteous standard that exposes its selfish wretchedness. We are its conscience. So when we leave the world at the rapture before the tribulation, all hell will literally break loose on earth because the conscience of the world is gone. Can you imagine what this world would be like without Christians? Can you imagine what our government would be like without Christian? You say, Pastor, our government's wicked. I agree. I mean wicked. But there are some Christians in there, a few, more than we even know, that take stands. And guess what? Those Christians suffer persecution. They get their name drugged through the mud. They get falsely accused. Why? Because they stand for life. They stand for life. They stand for two genders. They stand for marriage between man and a woman. And you say, well, well, oh, I can't believe. If you take a stand, it will cost you. These are not popular days to take a stand. But that doesn't mean that we cower down. That means we stand in the face of adversity. That means we preach the Word of God, whether it's popular or not. It's not always going to be popular, but it always will be right. And we need to take a stand in these days. Why? Because we want to please the Father. But secondly, we have a generation coming. And if we compromise, what are they going to have? We have to understand what... Look with me in John 15 verse 21. I felt like preaching when I got up this morning. I didn't have to do jumping jacks. I didn't have to run laps around the house. Didn't have to put on my favorite song. I felt like preaching. You say, why? Because I knew what I was preaching this morning. The Word of God. I didn't have to do five jumping jacks for Jesus. No, man, I, listen, I didn't have to get jacked up on something. I, listen, I got jacked up on the Word. And it is enough. And we need truth. 
And the point that John 15 verses 21 and 22 say is this, look with me. It says, but all these things when they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Now, no, verse 22 is an interesting verse. And if you're not careful, you'll, you'll, you'll misunderstand it. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. That's hard to understand, but I'll explain that to you. They had not had sin but now they have no cloak for their sin. This is critical to understanding John 15. Jesus is not talking about sin in general, not generalized sin, because whether he came or not, men would still be sinners, right? We'd just all go to hell. He had to come and die. He's not talking about generalized sin. He's talking about the guilt and the willful rejection of present Total revelation. So here's the deal. Men would know and see and hear, but still refuse. And by the way, nothing has changed. The world has come face to face with God's standard and they still reject it. They hated what He exposed them to be. Religious, but empty. They hated Him for that. They had the full revelation of the living Word. They had the full revelation of the written Word, and the world still hates Him. Why do they hate Him? Because He said He's God. He exposed them. He is God in the flesh. Have you ever lived with the guilt of sin and a conscience that just would not be quiet? That is what you and I in this world, we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that He came to die for sinners. We are to point, hey, you're never, you have never reached first base until you've realized that you are sinful in need of a Savior. So as a result, the world responds with accusations, with, with revilings, with hatred. They respond in different ways. And Jesus calls it persecutions. You say, Pastor, what does persecution look like today in 2023? Well, it could be that you're ostracized by your peers. Friends have left you. Maybe ridiculed. Maybe they're calling you some relic, some Bible. My, my dad, he got saved as a teenager, and he was a star football player, got a scholarship to Marshall University, uh, in the early 70s and, and a wrestler. He was a star wrestler and um, just a good athlete, a good athlete. And with that comes, obviously, in a public school, it comes with a lot of notoriety and, and some people knowing who you are. And they would have parties after the, they would have parties after the games, bonfires back then. And a lot of those guys would invite my dad, and my dad was saved. He lived in a drunkard's home. He was beaten, and, and, and often uh, my grandpa, who's in heaven now, got saved later. My grandpa abused my dad. My dad didn't want no part of that, even when he was lost. And then he got saved at the First Baptist Church of Beaver. I saw it this week. He got saved there, and he called my mom. They were dating in high school, and he called my mom and led my mom to Jesus. He said, something happened to me tonight. So they would invite him to these parties in high school. My dad would not, not go. And then they'd go to school the next day and talk about it and laugh and how they had a good time. And Dad kept telling them, no, no, I ain't going, no, can't go. And they started calling him Moses. They started calling him Elijah. They started calling him all these names. And my dad would go home and cry and break his heart. And people were making fun. And 
I was preaching in Bethley Friday night. About 250 men were there. We had a wonderful service, and several men were saved. And <clears throat> Of course, that's my, my dad's hometown. It's my hometown. Shady Springs just up the road, and so he knew a lot of the folks there. And there was a man that came out shaking hands at the door, and a man told me his name, and he said, uh, Your dad's Daryl Cox? I said, Yeah. He said, I went to high school with him. His words on the Bible, I wish I would have listened to him. I wish. Now, my dad's almost 70 years old. That's been a long time ago. But you could tell by that man's face that he wished he would have listened. He probably wouldn't have lived a life of heartache, a life of sorrow. But you know, he was made fun of in high school. You teenagers, you listen to me. You college students, you may stand and it may cost you friendships. You may get made fun of. It may be called because you're a virgin or because you won't do this or do that. But let me tell you something. You ought to stand for Christ. That crowd will never be able to come to where you are, but you can go at any time where they are. You stand for Jesus. You may be pitied by your simple lifestyle, mocked by your simple lifestyle, ridiculed at any time public figures fall. Maybe a preacher falls and they laugh at you and they use that as an illustration and, and they, they do these things. They call you bigots and intolerant. I, I mean, you get it. If you stand for Christ, you're going to get called names. You're going to get ridiculed. Hey, I, listen, we need to keep standing. Keep standing. I know a police officer right now that was denied promotion because he would not go to his boss's drinking party. I know a man who was working in a warehouse who, who knew certain goods were damaged and he was supposed to sign off and, and, and lie that they were never mishandled, but he, he chose not to sign off and it cost him his job. But he stood for Christ. He said, I ain't lying for this company. We've we got to live right. Folks, listen to me. Maybe nobody's watching, and that's fine. He's watching. One day it will matter when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It will matter. It will matter. Let's stand even in the face of persecution. Here's what Erwin Lutzer wrote. Erwin Lutzer, a great Bible teacher, he said, The message in the upper room effectively puts an end to the widespread belief that success and wealth are inevitably reached of living a committed Christian life. Christ promised that in the world we would have tribulation, not prosperity. So you say, Pastor, why would you preach this on Sunday morning? Everybody's going to be leaving depressed. Let me give you the lessons that we can learn because of persecution. Just three things and I'll read them to you. The first one is this. We should remember that while hated, and hatred is unfounded and unjustified, it is to be expected. Look with me in verse number 25 of John 15. But this cometh to pass. Now you better listen when Jesus says that. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that it is written in their law, they hated me without cause. Jesus actually quotes Psalm 69 and verse number 4, a prophecy. They hated me without cause. They could not find fault in him. They tried. They could not find fault. But guess what? They put him to death anyhow. Why? He exposed what they truly were. They hated him without cause. And listen, if they hated him, 
They're going to hate us. Why was Jesus rejected? The total of all reasons given is he declared himself to be equal with God. We write, we, we've preached that this year and last year. The Pharisees hated it because he said, I am he. Hated it. Here's the second reason. Lessons learned from persecution. The first one is we should remember that while hatred is unfounded and unjustified, it is to be expected. Number two, we should be aware that being ridiculed, ignored, rejected, despised, or any other form of hatred is an evidence that we are fulfilling our mission as Christ's witness. When the world loves you, you ain't doing something right. Now, I'm not saying we ought to walk around and try to be some instigator. I'm not telling you to even grab a, 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 some placard and go to downtown Greenville and scream at people. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm not against somebody that preaches the gospel, but I'm not against you going and, and you preaching the gospel and trying to... Listen, you don't have to get in your co-worker's face every day and harp on this and harp on that and try to get... Some, no, no, no. If you love Jesus and stand for Jesus, expect to be hated. And But let me say this. If you are hated, and when you are hated, you're just fulfilling the mission of Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Now, I don't mean that we should run the risk of making a nuisance of ourselves by witnessing at improper times, but there comes a time when we must show our Christian colors and if we are to be true to Jesus Christ. Here's number three and the final thing. We should constantly be concerned that the world's hatred for us is balanced by our love for each other. How do we survive in a hate-filled world when they are just shooting darts at us? And How do we, we love each other? That's exactly, look, notice verse 17 of our text, John 15 and verse 17. These things have I command you, these things I command you, that ye love one another. Why would Jesus say that right before he tells us the world is going to hate us? Because love is greater than hate. His love. And he tells us, church, love one another. Because no one in the world system will ever love you. They can't. The world system can't love you. But guess what? We serve a friend that stretched his life out, stretched his hands out for us, and died on the cross for our sins. And let me say, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you ought to know Him and experience Him today. I read a story about Jackie Robinson just this past week. Jackie Robinson was the, Robinson was the first black major league baseball player to rise from what the, the leagues that was just allowed black players. That's it. He was one of the first stars to arise from those leagues to be a national star. Matter of fact, he was inducted in 1962 to the uh, National Baseball Hall of Fame from the Brooklyn Dodgers. An incredible, incredible baseball player. It was not an easy beginning for this young man. There was prejudice in the crowds, jeered. They threatened him from the stands during one game at the Cincinnati uh, against the Cincinnati Reds. The crowd jeered him really bad, and uh, they were especially harsh on him. 
And there, this was a man by the name of Peter Golenbach. He wrote about this story. He told that something happened in that Cincinnati Reds game that really challenged and, and kind of changed the way people saw Jackie Robinson and even the jeering that happened. There was another player by the name of Pee Wee Reese, a teammate of, of Robinson's. He strolled out before the game, before the heckling crowd, and, and Robinson stood at second base, and the crowd was just giving it to him, man. They were booing and heckling and calling names. And when Pee Wee Reese reached Robinson at second base, he threw his arms around Jackie's shoulders and just stood beside him. Just stood there. The heckles did not stop. They just, they just started even more. But now they were shared. There was a friend that came to his aid. Somebody put his arm around him and said, hey, they're not just going to heckle you. If they heckle you, they're going to heckle me. Jesus says, you're going to be heckled. You're going to be jeered. You're going to be mocked, maybe even killed. But encouragement will come because I've thrown my arms around you and I love you and you're a friend and I'm your friend. Listen, let's stand. And by the way, let's stand, but let's be resilient. Let's not stop. Let's not stop. Let's, let's